You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. And a very warm welcome back to Solidarity Breakfast. A left response to the major developments in capitalism. What they trade in is not wheat. They trade in famine. A little dose of revolutionary optimism. I think it's really important to sort of express solidarity globally. It really is a deal by corporations for corporations. The union forever defending our rights down with the black If you think the ABC's left wing, don't listen to this program. Solidarity Breakfast, 7.30 to 9am Saturdays, 3CR, 8.55am. Streaming and 3CR Digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website, solidaritybreakfast.org.au. Solidarity forever! Good morning, everybody. This is Annie for 3CR Solidarity Breakfast. And uh, this morning we've got lots and lots and lots of uh, uh, things to talk about. And uh, so instead of doing a... um, Preliminary, I uh, thought I'd uh, go straight into uh, an important uh, uh, issue, which is the fate of some of the arrested Blockade Australia people. And we've got Veronica Kumi on the line. G'day, Veronica. How are you? Yeah, good, thank you. Yeah. Now, Veronica, you uh, made it uh, uh, clear to people that uh, two of the people that were put into denied bail after the uh, Colo Valley raids that were targeting the Blockade Australia people uh, before their action in uh, Sydney uh, were actually uh, kept in a tiny cell for 17 days without any sunlight. Yes, well, that's right. And so one of those people was my son, Max Kermie, Um and so I get, you know, occasional phone calls from him um, from the prison system. Um, and, yeah, so he he said to me the other day, you know, they hadn't been out of the cell for 17, for 17 days. Well, we counted the days. And um, so um, it's just shocking. Um, and so, um, yeah, so I, I rang the... Um, prison ombudsman in New South Wales, and um, I, I mean I don't know if that did it, but they certainly uh, transferred them out of the cell. Um, but it's just it's just unbelievably way too long. No sunlight, no exercise, no fresh air, um, and two of them together, grown men that have to shower and do all their ablutions. It's just uh, unbelievable. Yeah, and it's a bit uh, hard to work out if uh, they're being particularly targeted or if that's just the poorest state of the New South Wales prison system. Yes, well, that's right. Um, You know, I was told that uh, staff shortages throughout COVID was an issue, but this is our third year of COVID. And then um, they went on to say that the floods were making it even worse. And, you know, by that stage, the floods have been going for three days. Um, And it's just mixed different... Uh, here, one thing, you know, the prison says that it's 10 days isolation when you come in for COVID and yet he'd already been in there by, you know, he'd already been in there 17. So he'd been over the the two weeks. So, I mean, it was just, con- everything was a contradiction. Yeah, um, but yeah. still not, not good for people. You know, I mean, prison is awful, but it's supposed to be just, you know, a lack of freedom. It's not supposed to be torture. Um 
which, you know, um, of course I'm worried about my son. Um, yeah. Well, uh, Tim and Max have um, been singled out uh, and uh, th- they were singled out because, in inverted commas, concerns about their leadership and training role with evidence tendered that Tim had used a whiteboard. Oh, my goodness. Yes, yes, that's right. And from my understanding, that was evidence was obtained during the surveillance that the that they did for a couple of days before the raid at Colo. Um, and you know, there are serious concerns have been raised regarding the legal basis of that con- of that surveillance. Um, you know, and you know, we've all heard this as well as um, the reported failure. You know. In the in the surveillance to identify themselves when they were sprung. Yeah, exactly. And then the uh, breaking of all the um, smashing of the windows of all the cars. Yeah, that's right. Even if they had keys. Yes, that's right. And they also ran over. You know, ran into a couple of people driving fast through the property. You know, um, which you know, yeah, just one disgusting thing after another. Really, yeah. Now that that leads into uh, the um, actions that happened in Sydney and the mm. ramping up of uh, anti-protest laws in New South Wales as a response. Mm. Yes, well, that's right. I mean, after the Port of Botany mobilisation, you know, they they made much more serious charges, but. Um, you know, my son certainly hasn't been charged with those. I mean, conspiring to block a road, that's that's one of the charges. I mean, I'm, they're sort of all a bit loose, it's all a bit unsure, but, you know, they've got these, these serious things now, uh, two years in jail, you know, thousands of dollars fine, but they're not even using them. Um, so, you know, just, you know, throwing people in jail with no time limit on it. I mean, after the... Port of Botany, when he was arrested after that, yeah, he was given a four-month sentence, but, you know, he was out of jail, um, you know, after two and a half weeks, and then spent a month on house arrest. You know, it was still, you know, unbelievable, considering he's a climate change activist trying to save the planet. Uh, Sure, he might have been pretty extreme climbing up the crane, but, um, you know, these are serious times. Yeah, they are serious times and uh, this reactionary uh, response by government is quite clearly uh, aimed at the activists but not at dealing with climate change. No, no, not at all. No, in fact, it's going in the other direction. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and, yeah, and so in Sydney, you know, people were pulled over in their cars, any cars with a foreign, you know, not a New South Wales number place, um, pulled over Um Cars were defected, you know, like put off the road, so then people just couldn't keep going. Um, uh, people had their cars searched, had their tech uh, confiscated, um, and a lot of people had a lot of their possessions in their cars. Um, and then, you know, they were given, then they were, so they, they were arrested for things like having a, an art implement or a texture or a gardening tool, and then not given, then given bail and had to leave the state without being able to get the car fixed, not having enough time to fix the car, had to leave it behind. Just things like that. Um, Extraordinary. Extraordinary. Having a texter. Yeah, 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 that's right. Um, Yeah, unbelievable. People were arrested for one thing and then charged with something else. Um, You know, it's just, 
unbelievable. Um, and then, then in the during the mobilisation, people were arrested. Everyone was given non-association orders with these great lists of people that are supposedly linked to Blockade Australia. Um, and um, then, you know, just these unbelievable bail conditions. Um, and one, and then during the mobilisation, they were told part of our conditions was they had to give their phone to the police if they came around to visit them and open the phone for them. Oh, goodness. And uh, has, it, has there been any uh, pushback legally? I know that uh, there is... There are people representing the Blockade Australia people yeah. and there is uh, a pushback, isn't there? Well, there's a fantastic legal team. There's some fantastic people that have come forward. Um, but there's a, the volume has just been unbelievable. The volume of people arrested and it all takes time. Um, and they wanted to keep people out of jail. So, I mean, their bail conditions, people will all be returning to court. But um, the way that they're using the, the prison system... Um, for people on bail or before they even go get in front of the magistrate is, is appalling. So we want to keep people out of jail. And so with uh, Tim and Max, what's going to happen with them? Well, you know, that's a bit... It's, it's, it's hard to know. They've got... I know Max has got a, a hearing on Tuesday, but, um, you know, we're not sure. Because they've, they've you know, entered this conspiracy charges into it, it makes it a lot more complicated. And I'm not even really sure of the other the other uh, charges, but um, you know, he he, you know, yeah, we don't know. They just wanted to lock him up. It seems to me they just wanted to lock him up. Yeah, right. And uh, but it's interesting, isn't it? Because uh, the establishment considers. Leaders, they, it sees the world in terms of leaders and yes, followers. Yes. But Blockade Australia is different, isn't it? Well, it is. It's very different. Um, and 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 people know that they're looking for that sort of thing because they're they're always asking anyone who's ever been arrested. Blockade Australia has always been asked, you know, who are the organisers, all this sort of stuff. But it's, uh, you know, it's 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 it doesn't have leaders. There are, you know, people that do a lot of um, work and are keen, um, but there's plenty of those, lots and lots of people. And, um, yeah, so... It's actually um, a mass movement. Well, hopefully it's a mass movement, yes. Yes, it's getting more and more uh, people interested in it all the time. And, um, yeah... Uh, I'm quite fascinated. I mean, it's a broad. Uh, there's a l- wide range of age groups. It's not. It's not. Um, uh, you know, l- like saving the planet uh, from climate change and a disastrous capitalist system isn't uh, an age a specific um, no. fight. But there are an awful lot of young people involved. There are an awful lot of young people involved, and. Um I suppose they're concerned about their future. I know, I know my son is, you know, very concerned about having a livable planet. Um, and, um, but there are plenty of older people who are interested as well. You know, it, it has it, a huge range of ages with people and people from all sorts of backgrounds as well um, because all of us have to live on this planet. Um, and so all of us, if all of us were concerned... It would be fantastic if all of us were concerned enough to to make us 
make, you know, get out there and do something. It, that's all we need. You know, we've got the power with the people and Blockade Australia has re- really proven that. Um, but the state's really coming down hard because it's obviously a threat to to the status quo and, you know, the future of destroying this company, country for profit. You know, that's um, yeah, how I see it. Um, I'm interested in the... Uh layout of Sydney in, in the sense that uh, it's invested hugely in uh, privately run tunnel uh, roads, effectively. Uh, Alright. Yeah, and I, I was talking to uh, some people from Blockade Australia about strategy and of course they couldn't really talk about that but they saw it as an opportunity that uh, uh, Sydney is so congested and has such defined arterial and tunnel uh, roadways. Was that... How did the blockade work over the last week? Um, Well, there was a huge overreach by the police. Um, So people were picked off the street, you know, not even on the road, just walking. Um, And, I mean, sure, Sydney was a big target and it was also where colonisation began. You know, I mean, Botany Bay, Sydney, and it's, it's you know, the biggest, um, you know, CBD, so business district in Australia, um, but it is fairly it's also It's also the financial centre. Yeah, 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 absolutely. So, um, and I mean, I'm not party as to what happened. What, no, what no, but you, you would have observed what happened. Yeah, yeah, that's right. I mean, it was... Just it was what the, what I saw was just the walking around, blocking the streets, um, you know, and the blockages didn't last for very long. And the police were there, you know, pushing people and shoving people and arresting people and pepper spraying people. Yeah, yeah, the pepper spray always. Yeah. The pepper. and then of course, oh, they bring in the in in Melbourne, they bring in the horses. Yeah, only a couple of horses there in Sydney. Yeah, they didn't have as many as I've seen in Melbourne, um, but. Yeah, I mean Sydney. I mean any any big city is a target. I mean I think Sydney's more chaotic than Melbourne, but um, just as far as um, targeting that for the mobilisation, um, you know, it's a big city, really. That's all, and it is you know the heart of the financial sector of Australia as well. Um, yeah, and also you know they've they've. Got all the coal and everything in New South Wales. I mean, not it's not just coal; it's a, it's a whole, you know, capitalist system that we have here. Um, but it just it started there. It has a it has its heart there. Um, um, we, we, we we got the impression that uh, a lot of talkback uh, radio was flogging um, an anti message, but also that there was actually quite. A, strong public support for an understanding of the issues that are on hand. Yeah, yeah, I think I think there is. I think it is growing. I think people are finally connecting that um, climate change, you know, capitalism is not going to survive climate change no matter what. And people are starting to get that. And people, you know, the idea of this mobilisation was that people, the, any person could come and join in the mobilisation and be part of the movement, um, you know, without having to hang off a bridge or something like that. You know, it was an ability, it was it gave people the opportunity, and, and people certainly came. Uh, um, 
I'm sure some people were, were scared off, and that's totally understandable because the police overreach has been unbelievable. Um, and, um, you know, even the hostel that I stayed in when I was there, they came into the room. You know, I was already asleep. It was 10 o'clock at night. They came in and just to have a little chat, you know, it was unbelievable. Um, and then they left again. Um, yeah, so they were certainly, they certainly were watching people and following people. There was heaps of plainclothes police as well, just just following people, monitoring people, picking them off, arresting them, defecting their car, searching their car, and then, um, you know, releasing them with these amazing uh, bail conditions. So well, there's no uh, wonder some people didn't come. Yeah, yeah, but it's not over, is it? No. No, 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 it's not over. No, it's not over. No, the mobilisation in Sydney is over, except for all the people that still need to go through the courts. But the, the fight's still on. Thanks. Well, yeah, it's yeah. Right. the fight's not over till you win. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Thanks for talking to us, Veronica. Okay, thank you. Home 3CR Radio Thon Fundraiser, 3 to 7pm, Saturday, 23rd of July. Uprise Radio and Stick Together join forces bringing you an afternoon of discussion and music. Climate, capitalism and the future. Zelda Grimshaw from Block Aid Australia. Dr Colin Long, sustainability campaigner from Victoria Trades Hall. And Anthony Kelly from Melbourne Activist Legal Service. Followed by tunes from local legends Liz Thomas and Maxine Fink. Refreshments, raffle and fun. Climate, capitalism and the future. Uprise Radio and Stick Together event. 3CR fundraiser. Saturday, July the 23rd, 3 to 7pm. Black Spark Cultural Centre, 253A St George's Road. $10 solidarity. No one turned away. Side by side, we walk along to the end of Gertrude Street, and we pop all the mustard for a Hi, I'm John Harding. Happy NAIDOC Week, everybody. I want you all to join me for a special presentation, NAIDOC Saturday, the 9th of July, a radio adaptation of The Dirty Mile, a play I wrote in conjunction with Gary Foley and Kylie Belling. It's a walk down Koori Fitzroy. Come and listen to the history, the characters, the events, the organisations and the people who made up the community of the Fitzroy Blacks. Grab a cuppa, put your feet up, have a laugh, a cry and a walk down Dirty Gertie, Gertrude Street, with me and my friends. The Dirty Mile is being broadcast NAIDOC Saturday, 5.30pm, 9th of July, on the Let Your Freak Flag Fly show. Always was, always will be. Aboriginal land. Cause it's getting closer and closer to its hands. You're with Annie on 3CR Breakfast and uh, there was some great news today. Uh, well, yesterday actually. Uh, uh, the charges have been uh, dropped against Bernard Kaliri. And uh, we've got uh, Andy from the uh, Australian East Timor Friendship Association, South Australia, who is also as happy as we are. 
G'day Andy, how are you? Oh, good thanks Andy, how are you? Good. Now, of course, uh, the you're part of a group of people who are particularly interested in the fact that uh, Bernard Kaliri has been um, had his charges dropped because it was from the shores of East Timor that uh, this controversy began. Well, that's right, yes, but um, Bernard Kaliri has played a very important role in the whole struggle for East Timor to get control of its resources. Um, I, I don't know if people would remember, but in 2004, just after Timor won its independence, um, the um, new leaders had to uh, work with the... Uh, will negotiate with uh, Australian leaders, especially um, uh, Alexander Downer and John Howard, about the resources in the Timor Sea. And uh, the Australians ensured that there would not be a maritime boundary halfway between the coasts of our two countries, and they wanted to make sure that they got uh, a huge amount of the resources in what would be Timor's half of the sea. See, under under the law of the sea, um, normally between two countries, um, there's a maritime boundary halfway between the two coasts. And they tried to deny the Timorese that so they could take more of their resources. And it was, um, it was uh, Witness K who was appointed or t- ordered by um, Downer to spy on the East Timorese to find out what their position would be in negotiations. Uh, Witness K's name cannot be um, uh, mentioned. I don't even know what it is. But he was working for the Australian Security uh, Intelligence Services, ASIS, and uh, they put in um, bugs in meeting rooms in the um, in the uh, government offices in in Dili, and so that was how it was all set up in the first place by Australia. And, and it's interesting because Bernard was the person who actually represented Timor-Leste government in the International Permanent Court of Arbitration to overthrow the totally unfair and exploitative certain... Well, yes, that's right. And that's what... He's considered a hero in uh, Timor-Leste, isn't he? And he's considered a hero by Australians who work in solidarity with Timor as well because uh, he... He's been a long-time friend of Janana Gushmau and Jose Rama's daughter. And um, when, when Witness K came forward and said, look, um, this has happened, he said, I've got a, um, a crisis of conscience because what we did had nothing to do with Australia's security. It had everything to do with Australian leaders trying to defraud the East Timorese um, and prevent them from having their 
access to all of their resources just after they had had 24 years of fascist terrorism in their country um, because of the Indonesian military um, um, occupation, which saw a third of the population die and 80% of its infrastructure totally destroyed. But it's interesting as well because when we witnessed Kay came forward and he required legal assistance, he was sent to Bernard. He was sent to where? To Bernard Kaliri to represent him. Oh, right. Well, when this, when this happened um, and Janana discovered that, um, the then president discovered that um, the spying had occurred, he decided that, that the agreement, which was called CMAT, certain maritime agreements in the team of C, decided that uh, they weren't going to um, abide by that. And they went to the International Criminal Court of Arbitration to have it overturned. And... Um, of course, the, the great thing was that um, Bernard was a key uh, lawyer representing the Timorese government. And he also became the key um, um, lawyer looking after um, Witness K. Which is, it, it, but it, it's interesting that that should be the case because it was quite clear that Bernard Kaliri had already shown that he was a great supporter of Timor-Leste. And so there was a, a strange thing that uh, Witness K should be represented by Bernard. And then subsequently, uh, he Bernard Kaliri gets charged with, in fact, I'm not even sure what he was charged with, except that it was apparently in uh, the... Uh, country's uh, interest uh, that uh, he should be charged? Oh, well, when... Um, because the Timorese took that move, um, the Australian government decided that um, that they had breached Australian security. Now, they hadn't breached Australian security at all. That was a total fabrication by the Liberal government. What they had done was to stop the Australian government from stealing East Timor's resources. And, um, I mean, the, you, I suppose um, you've heard, well, we certainly didn't put it in the press release, but um, when Witness K was going to be sent to, to um, the Hague to be a witness in the case at the permanent court, the Australian government um, took his passport. They also raided his house. In addition, um, when I say they, the Australian government did, it was ASIO, Australian Security Intelligence Organisation, um, also raided um, Bernard Caleri's office and house to it's get to get important material. Yeah, bizarre stuff. Yeah, and the court responded and said, look, because um, 
I've got ahead of myself. I should say that uh, it, it stopped Witness K from being a witness. So, in other words, the Australian government was trying to subvert the course, course of justice. Well, uh, and- I'll have to say that it's a great day that uh, the new uh, Attorney General has uh, basically squashed the case. Uh, I don't know what's going to happen next. I, you know, it makes me wonder if uh, Bernard Kaliri will sue them. But, you know, who knows? Uh, but there are other people, whistleblowers, that are affected by um, the last government's um, behaviour, like uh, David Bridie and um, Richard Boyle, the Richard Boyle who whistled blow, blew on the tax department's... Um, That's right. And yeah. he's 160 years uh, imprisonment. Just so, 15 years less than Julian Assange. Yeah, well, then, of course, there's Julian Assange, of course. Yeah. Um, and I'm not sure if the government will take... We, we are very grateful that the government's taken this step, but really, the Labor Party could have prevented this rip-off way back during the Rudd-Gillard um, years and they didn't do it. Um, they could have stopped this a long time ago, and they didn't. But we're now grateful they've done it. But it yeah. should have happened a lot earlier. Yeah. Uh, and, um, of course, leading the charge has been the Alliance Against Political Prosecutions, and I guess they're going to be continuing on to uh, try and uh, work on positive outcomes for these other people. Yeah, so... Captain Kerry and uh, um, Susan Connolly, who are um, co-conveners, have been wonderful on on this. Um, and Susan he has just written a book actually about the um, the way the Timorese have been treated, which looks at both Australia's role during the time. Um, that the Indonesian military occupied the country, but also looking at the way Australia attempted to defraud the, the Timorese people. Um, the other thing, the other thing is that uh, Bernard Kaleri has written a book, All Under Troubled Water, which is an excellent read. But what it shows is that the oil companies got away with, as they say in Australian parlance, blue murder, because um, it, it's not only natural gas and oil that's in the Timor Sea, there is also helium. And the um, Woodside, the, the major company operating in the Timor Sea, knew very well there was a lot of helium, which is now used in space science and, and other industries. And it's worth a lot of money. They established a um, a processing plant in Darwin just to get the uh, the helium. And neither government knew about this, and neither government, neither the Timorese nor the Australian government, uh, um, were told that this was was so. And as a result, they've lost any sort of income from that resource that really belongs to both countries. So both peoples have been defrauded by the oil companies as well. Uh, 
Well, Eddie, they, it's, uh, it, there's a lot more juice in this story. Uh, thanks very much for talking to me this morning. Thank you very much for having me. That's great, Annie. Good morning and good afternoon, listeners. It's on again. After three years, the mighty concrete gang pull up. Monday, July 11th, down in the Elson Kilda, 14 Fitzroy Street at the Cross. The concrete gang pull up, 11am in the morning, onwards. $20 ticket can get you a Guernsey. 20 bucks gets you a ticket in the raffle, bit of food and entertainment from the great Phil Parra band. Drinks at bar prices. It also gives you a chance to win a uh, $500 voucher in the door price. So make sure you get your ticket. It's going to be bigger than Texas. We're all going to be there, make some money for 3CR, keep them on air and keep going on. And as we say, dare to struggle, dare to win. If you don't fight, you lose. The Concrete Gang, Monday, July the 11th, 11am at the Cross, 14 Fitzroy Street, St Kilda. Be there. We faced deregistration, it backfired in the face. We're not fooled by arbitration, we won't stay in our place. We hit the bosses hard and fast to win and keep our game. Online and in cinema. Melbourne Documentary Film Festival will be running online from the 1st to the 31st of July and at Cinema Nova from the 21st to the 31st of July. Canvassing the world's best docos from South by Southwest, Tribeca and Hot Docs, as well as the best Australian content. Check out the lineup and book today at mdff.org.au or cinemanova.com.au. The Melbourne Documentary Film Festival is a 3CR supporter. You're back with Annie on 3CR Breakfast and uh, on we've got uh, on the phone we've got uh, filmmaker Alex Sidden, uh, The Art of Incarceration, which uh, was actually at uh, the Melbourne Documentary Film Festival, I think, last year. Is that right, Alex? Uh, good morning. Um, it was 2019, it was. Oh, right, because uh, I remember watching it and I was very, I mean, it left a very strong impression on me. So when I watched it again, I was, uh, it, I picked up more and more things. Um, and uh, for listeners, The Art of Inca- uh, Incarceration has been picked up by Netflix and uh, you have the opportunity to go there and uh, watch it, which is a great thing that this should be uh, getting a worldwide audience, isn't it? Yeah, thank you. Um, yeah, it is. Um, it is pretty incredible. A bit unexpected. Um, not not because we didn't you know believe in ourselves in the film, but it was you know very humble production. So uh, we were yeah a little bit surprised, pleasantly surprised. But it's amazing, and Netflix have actually been really awesome, wanting the film to do really well. So that's cool as well. Yeah, yeah. Um, but. Uh... You say it's a humble film, but um, you what you do, what you've done is uh, you see we see through the eyes of Indigenous prisoners at Victoria's Fulham Correctional Centre, right? Um, now that's actually not an easy thing to do. So, uh, how did this project come about? Oh, uh, well, thank you. Um, yeah, it came about. I just um, started making short films, um, just documentaries about people I'd met. Um, after the boys having visions of it, and then I sort of wanted to do a feature, and I became very interested in this issue and this absolute, you know, humanitarian crisis surrounding Indigenous incarceration about 
you know, 2015-ish and thinking there wasn't much film or, you know, documentary or literature or whatever around it. Um, and then soon after, I met Robbie Waramanda, who had recently been released from the prison sentence. And um, he's quite a striking and uh, hulking presence himself, you know, former super heavyweight world champion fighter and 160 kilos with tribal tattoos etched across his uh, neck and hands. And I striked up a friendship with him and he went on to become one of my best friends and a father figure and a mentor. And we spoke about the project and he'd been doing art inside prison through the Torch program. Um, so that pushed us in the direction of this film being a possibility. And then I was given permission through a very long process to go into Fulham and speak to the inmates. And um, it was there that I met Christopher Austin, who was the elder in the unit and one of the other lead subjects. And he sort of, the screws took me up to him and I walked through the whole prison, which was pretty hardcore experience. And I got there and Chris told me to have a seat and we had a bit of a yarn and he was really supportive of the film and the boys getting to tell their stories. And, um, he then called in, uh, you know, 30 prisoners and I spoke to the group and then we organised a screening of some other films just so they could get a feel for who I was and what my work was like. And um, it really happened from there, to be honest. So I suppose, to answer your question succinctly, it was really about friendships, you know, friendships and amazing connections and mutual respect and desire to connect and tell this story. Yeah, yeah, and it comes across that way uh, because... Uh... Uh, I, I was really taken by, I mean, like, l- look at the statistics. Um, uh, three, you, you actually start the film off with that. 3% of the population is, uh, is actually Indigenous Australian, but they account for 27% of adult prison population. And uh, Indigenous youth, 55% of young people in detention. And that takes us back to something that really came out to me, which was that because they... Uh, uh, there's a whole generation of Indigenous male children who have been incarcerated for being unruly children, and basically that's the, and then left without with a long trek into uh, prison uh, without any skills for for supporting themselves. Absolutely, yeah, you, you're absolutely Shocking. right. I mean, it's it's oh, it's harrowing, and um, I mean. The stories I would hear only reinforce not only the injustice but the absolute brutal reality uh, and the institutionalisation, you know, which which we're alluding to. Um, you really do see that. Um, I feel from what I observed and what I was told firsthand, the inmates lose their confidence, their ability to participate in society, and feel like a contributing member of that society upon release. So it's a bit of a game that you know commit offence and come back and in prison they've got somewhat of a community and somewhat of a structure and as brutal as it is, you know, through their pure strength they can survive in there more so than what is perceived on the outside. So it's just that tragic perpetual cycle. And um, through the subject of Chris Austin, who is another great friend of mine, we really do see the breaking of that cycle. Um, Chris had been in the system, he just turned 12 and he was sent to Parkville for being uncontrollable. Yeah, in inverted commas, it's called uncontrollable. It's yeah, action. that's right. Yeah. <laughs> I remember when he told me that, and it was just a bit of a pause, and I obviously didn't want to offend him, and it was obviously, you know, I just met him, and I was in his cell, and there weren't many screws around. It was pretty intense, and I was sort of, could you elaborate on that sort of uncontrollable? Because, you know, being a non-Indigenous man myself, 
I was like, you know, how can you be locked up for being uncontrollable? Uncontrollable, yeah. He just said, um, if you went to court once or twice, that was the term that put you in there. Made you water the state for being uncontrollable. Mm. And I mean, wow. And that's, that's common of his generation as well. And he ended up serving, you know, I think it was 37 years. Uh, the longest he spent on the outside, nine months, from the age of 12 to 38, I think it was, or 48, sorry, 12 to 48. The longest was nine months in society. So how can the system be working or productive or intuitive to growth if, you know, that's the numbers that have been presented through, you know, through Chris's life story? Um, yeah, it's, 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 it's tragic. Yeah, yeah, it is, it is tragic and uh, uh, and common. That's the worst of it. I mean, it, it's calculated. Yeah, that's right. I mean, it, it really was common for a lot of the um, a lot of the artists in there because they, you know, obviously a lot of participating in the program to have been to have been to um, Parkville or Malmesbury or another youth detention, you know, maybe New South Wales or wherever wherever they may have been. Um, so. I think it was actually very common. I think there was only a couple of the boys in there who I spoke to who hadn't been to juvie. So, I mean, that's a that's a harrowing story, and there needs to be so much more done for young offenders, and especially when you hear their stories. And there's all those you know common variables of unstable housing, you know, lack of mentorship, guidance, yeah, you know, minor minor offences, minor well. offences. Minor offences, then jail time, institutionalisation, and then the offences grow. And, and they grow, and yeah. it's not good for the society, and it's not good for the individual, and it's it's um, something that we need to change. And you know, I hope this story, in a small way, or maybe even a big way, can um, push that momentum and that energy and that perception forward. There's a quote: uh, Chris Christopher is attempting to forge a better future, and this is his quote: "In the past, I was a crook, you know, a jailbird, but now I'm an artist." My daughter is so proud of that. I never used to think of myself that way. I, it's just so, just says it all, really, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. I remember um, when Christopher, one of the first times I spoke to him, he spoke about doing art for the first time in the unit, you know, obviously facilitated by the torch and her amazing work. And he, he was saying that he felt uncomfortable when people were saying that they like his art. And I was like, well, what do you mean? I was pretty confused. He was like, I didn't know what he was trying to say. He was saying, oh, you know, when people say they like your art and that, it's a bit weird, you know? I was like, what do you mean? And now we joke about it. He was really saying that he felt awkward getting a compliment. That's or, right. You know, getting some encouragement. Yeah. Because he'd never never experienced anything through his through his life. And I thought, you know, if you compare that to my own white existence of being educated and the other side of the spectrum of fortune, I just could not believe that. And we laugh about it now, with, you know, in good grace and, and, and good taste and... um. But, yeah, I think that says it all, yeah. There was another point in that film that uh, where the fellow almost cried, uh, but he, it was talk, he was talking about being part of mob, about going, like you were saying, when people go to jail, then they become a, a mob. But he, he, he was dislocated from his mob, and that's so profound. Yeah, that's right. Um, he was also from... Um from up north, and all of those boys were Victorian. And um, I think he was saying that he felt a bit of that community vibe and that community sort of structure or microcosm within the art room in Fulham, because it does have a big art room. Um, and there was 
different find exhibition, obviously ran annually by the torch, and all the artists were building towards that. So there was that feeling of being part of a team and being part of something and actually achieving a bit of purpose. And you know, he's as tough as nails, Joseph. Um, I can guarantee that. But you know, it, it made him shed a tear that feeling of being a part of something. So it just shows that I mean, lost incarcerated, they don't want to be pushed to the corner and you know made even more angry or bitter than what they were. They, they want to grow and they want to be conducive to becoming something greater. You know, the inmates do. I saw that firsthand. So we need to enable that. And if we don't, then it's just a broken system. Yeah, yeah. Now, this film was... Uh, you you collaborated making this film, uh, not just with the uh, subjects, um, but, uh, I mean, and, there, you know, there's some happy... Uh, uh, grooves in this but there's also some very sad grooves in this film yeah um and uh but uh tell us about the collaboration with the writing the writers the other people who helped you yeah no worries so yeah it was a massive collaboration and it was always going to be that from the start um so i wrote the film with robbie waramanda and christopher austin the two subjects so yeah once we finished the film um, you know, throughout the whole journey, we were sort of, there was no dialogue about what we would talk about on camera and making sure everyone was comfortable. And there was always that respect. And I knew where I stood and they knew where they stood and really strong relationships formed. And then once we shot the film, we wrote the narration, which Uncle Jack Charles narrated. He did an outstanding job. And um, yeah, it was amazing. You know, like I would be on the actual keyboard writing it mostly, but I'd get get Chris and Robbie on the phone and we'd work out how to best say things. Like, um, there's a quote in the intro. It, it used to be a bit further down the field, but in the, net, the Netflix cut, it's um, Art Remains is one of the purest and most accessible ways for our people to connect with culture. Those inside did not let the prison walls dull their creativity. And I wrote that with Chris Austin. And, um, you know, so it was, it was amazing. And Robbie was a co-producer. He was a writer. Um, he was everything on the outside, and Christopher was the, you know, the So he enabled it on the inside. He um, organised for people to be interviewed. He helped people get confidence. He brought people together. So on both sides of the camera, we made the film, and it, it was a collaboration between Indigenous and non-Indigenous artists, filmmakers, and friends, really. And that's one of the, you know, truest ways I can probably explain what this uh, massive journey was. The music as well. Yeah, Theo McMahon, big shout out, one of my best friends, Bonjolong. Um, and his brother's also an incredible person. One of the he's the thirteenth ever architect, indigenous architect. Um, they're amazing brothers. Um, Theo did an amazing job. It was his first ever score. He used a lot of different instruments. Um, he made some very amazing sounds. Um, and yeah, the soundscape's massive. And he also got some additional guitar work from George Farah, one of my other best mates. To um, Theo sort of. Uh, directed and um, got that ambient guitar in but yeah it's got a lot of music for a documentary and um, yeah the music came out really really dope and um, everyone across the park just smashed it and we all came together and we're all at my house last Sunday celebrating the release together which was lovely as well. Yeah that's really nice and of course um, have the uh, Fulham Correctional Centre boys seen it? Uh, That's a good point so we got an, an email which was really nice to hear from from someone fairly high up there saying they were going to organise a screening. Mm. Um, like the artists who we have got hold of have all seen it. Um, some of them we actually haven't. People don't know where they are. And 
Yep. Yeah, Chris Austin's just told me that's the reality of it sometimes. Um, but uh, no, so the, the current film crew in there haven't seen it, but we're organising that and we, we aim to screen it in every prison in Victoria and even every prison in Australia, really, if they're inter- anyone who's interested. We want to show it inside prison because that's one of the most important things to show that you, obviously there is tragedy and you, know, you can come out and you know you can not survive, but you can also survive and you can achieve things that you think was possible. And I saw that firsthand through Robbie Romanda and Christopher Austin and it's incredible what they've achieved and how we caught it on camera and we did it all with a borrowed camera. We didn't even have our own camera and a shared vision. So, um, yeah... To anyone inside, we, we aim to show this film as soon as we can. We're organising it as we speak. Yeah, yeah, good good stuff. Um, uh, you're a self-taught uh, filmmaker as well, so uh, there you go. Yeah. Get up, get up uh, stand up, and uh, turn up. That's, yeah, that's it. Yeah, I was a self-taught filmmaker. And I mean, I've been surrounded by amazing people, amazing artists like Robbie Warmander, who just believed in me. He always believed in me. Uh, you know, as stern as he is, he... Um, he uh, he's he's taught me so much about art and about visualization and about self belief. He told me the first time I go into prison and speak to the inmates is the the first time the fighter walks into the ring and looks their opponent in the eyes. So he, he got me <laughs> mentally he got me mentally prepared the whole time. But um, yeah, that's try myself to a filmmaker. Um, I've been blessed to have made my first feature with people who I love and care about so much. I'm almost worried about making another film because. The, the friendships are so strong here, you know, but, uh, yeah, no, nah, it's, it's all love. And, um, yeah, Robbie was on ABC actually, you know, talking about how he's a filmmaker. So I think he's, he's, he's the next big thing, but, um, yeah, it's all good. Yeah. So The Art of Incarceration on Netflix and, uh, Alex Sidden, thanks very much for talking to us and uh, oh, uh, more strength to your arm. Thank you so much. And much respect to you guys and all the amazing work you do. And, um, Thank you so much for having me on this morning. Side by side, we walk along to the end of Gertrude Street. And we top all the muster for... Hi, I'm John Harding. Happy NAIDOC Week, everybody. I want you all to join me for a special presentation, NAIDOC Saturday, the 9th of July a radio adaptation of The Dirty Mile, a play I wrote in conjunction with Gary Foley and Kylie Belling. It's a walk down Koori Fitzroy. Come and listen to the history, the characters, the events, the organisations and the people who made up the community of the Fitzroy Blacks. Grab a cuppa, put your feet up, have a laugh, a cry and a walk down Dirty Gertie, Gertrude Street, with me and my friends. The Dirty Mile is being broadcast NAIDOC Saturday, 5.30pm, 9th of July, on the Let Your Freak Flag Fly show. Always was, always will be. Aboriginal land. Because it's getting closer and closer to its hands. A weak solidarity, Bricky team listener, when let's assuage those worries for thousands of concerned calls we haven't received have that the resignation of Her Most Gracious Majesty's home country, our mother country's big supremo Boris John's gone, could threaten Trudeau's trillion dollar adoption of US, of the UN, of the US, of the world, our father country's merchants of death nuclear submarines.
Our Minister for Train Killing and Offence, Richard Malls, the bad guys, has assured us it will not threaten this trillion-dollar boost to the US of coffers, allowing us to follow the US of and do a bit of train killing wherever our father country orders us to train kill. That's so reassuring, because otherwise those trillions would be wasted on non-essentials like public housing and public transport and public health and public education, non-corporate welfare for the non-corporates, assisting True Blue Aussie's first people whom we all so care about in NADOC week. All those areas where the public sector should and mostly does get out of the way and leave it to the super-efficiency of the private sector, like roads, which used to be public. But thankfully, not only do we hand roads over to the private sector, who naturally have to charge a little to recoup the costs the public sector met so we can enjoy the benefits of their ownership, but we've now handed the whole roads bureaucracy over to the private sector, which some long-haired, commie, greenie cynic suggested will lead to massive increases in costs. As if just imagine what sort of mess and how expensive our energy system and bills would be if that was still publicly owned. But we've diverted. More good news on the Boris Johns gone resignation. Again, for those concerned that this might lead to something as dangerous as decent policies, rest assured. One caring business class big supremo will be replaced by another caring business class big supremo. We'll hardly notice the difference. On NADOC week, that self-professed supporter of Indigenous people, Twitty More For Us, is celebrating it by heading for the invaders' white man's uh, and woman's court to challenge native title holders who repay his care for them by standing between Twitty and a bag of lovely, lovely profits by claiming he will destroy traditional sites in the Pilbara, including centuries of rock art. After all, he's done for them and the law says he can on his sacred mine site. Twitty's concern for these ingrates came from life on the family's massive pastoral lands where presumably he would wander out to the station workers, whose land it actually is, wander out every week or two and hand out the tobacco and beads and mirrors and things. As interest rates shot up again, we have to feel for the poor banks. Well, not poor financially, though they could be. Poor banks forced to put their customers under stress. And so caring are they, they tell us how they understand the stress their customers will suffer. But what choice do they have other than not putting their borrowers under stress? Yet there are complications in the delicate flower that is the economy, because for those who have their money in the bank, it's just not so simple to also increase the interest the bank pays them. Expressed this week by former Socialist Party Big Supremo of Her Most Gracious Majesty's Land up north and now bank spokesperson, showing how socialist the banks must be, Anna Blight on the Poor, who asked why the banks couldn't increase the interest to savers as feverishly and at the same rate as it applies to its borrowers, explained there were a number of reasons. It, it's obviously very complicated that the words profit, profitability came up somewhere in her long explanation and the only reason she didn't come up with was greed so that's obviously got nothing to do with it look in their generosity the banks have offered an increase on savings but not not as large as the increase on mortgages or on borrowers but 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 well not nearly as large but 
they do have their shareholders and massive executive salaries to think of. Yet sensibly, the new rates come with more conditions than an insurance policy, ensuring about 0.001% of customers qualify, matching the roughly 0.001% give or take savings interest rate itself. Well, less given, more take, but, but they do have their shareholders and massive executive salaries to think of, but sensibly the new rates come with more conditions than an insurance policy, ensuring about 0.001% of customers qualify, matching the roughly 0.001% give or take savings interest rate itself. Well, less given, more take, but they have to be careful with other people's money, the other people they're ripping off, or, or sorry, treating so benevolently. In the caring business class relations schizophrenic department, highly responsible gig economy caring employer Uber must be suffering a serious episode because as it has agreed with the evil transport union to discuss at least, no guarantees, basic rates and conditions for its contractors, it also headed to the fair work Trubler was he no longer work choices just looks like it con mission to ensure it has no employees to receive basic rates and conditions, just individual contractors on their bikes or at the wheel, using a sensible down-to-earth High Court ruling which the Con Mission supported, despite describing the contracts it has deemed legal, potentially unfair. So poor Uber must be so confused, while over in the US of, spare a thought for struggling tech giant and benevolent employer, she'll be apples where lazy, avaricious workers in Baltimore voted, talk about disrespect, voted to join an evil union. Despite she'll be apples telling them, she'll be apples if they don't join the union and rotten to the core if they do. Cautioning the silly workers that joining a union could hurt the company's business. What disobedient workers. They, they didn't explain how it would hurt their business, but we can assume it would have nothing to do with the little matters like they may have to pay their workers. Shelby Apples tried to prevent this disaster by pulling workers into their caring employers' offices and explaining what a disaster it would be, including having to pay union fees. Yet they still ignored them, even though she'll be offered to pay them an extra dollar or two an hour over and above their exorbitant slave rate. In fact, one evil union official said the Shelby Apples anti-union campaign was nasty. So spare a thought. After a couple of years of nightly updates on the numbers of COVID cases and deaths, sensibly these days our news services would now have us believe COVID hardly exists given their non or very limited coverage now that we have to learn to live with it. Oh, and die with it, but keeping the economy going must take precedence. Uh, so COVID is no longer a problem, we asked COVID spokesperson Robert Let It Rip. Oh, no, 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 it's as big a problem as ever, maybe bigger than ever, it's rampant. Uh, then why are we lifting all restrictions? No more vaccination checks at airports, for instance. No need to wear masks in crowded places. That'll make it even bigger than, bigger than ever. No idea, you'll have to ask the Chamber of Profits. The Chamber of Profits? Why? What have they got to do with it? Well, everything, of course, they're our public health experts, they're our public health advisors. In yet another display of his intellectual superiority, our former minister for going overseas all the time and being a perfectly good little prefect, Alexander, told us of big supremo Joe Biden capitals, 
once again demonstrated his inadequacy as a leader by criticising the Supreme Court judges who ruled against Roe v. Wade. If the public turn against the courts, then the whole structure of society will start to collapse, Alexander warned, which I hope doesn't encourage long-haired commie greeny wooden worker in iron lots to rush out to do just that. No, 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 we must praise their honours for their wise decision, respect their misogynistic wisdom, like we respect Alexander's wisdom. So, as the court sentence irresponsible criminals opposing fossils frying the planet or thwarting the legal occupation of chainsawing native forests, legal occupation as opposed to these long-haired criminals' illegal occupation of non-public public forests, let's get out and show our support for their honours for putting these people away for as near as possible to the term of their natural lives as governments legislate harsher and harsher penalties to prevent disruption to the chainsaws and fossil corporates. Natural lives, which are pretty unnatural lives anyway, non-conformist lives and finding them several times over their worldly wealth. Let's join Alexander in conforming to all that is good and decent and binding our society together like caring employers and caring business class and hayseed and sheepshit and socialist parties. The law and order, the sorry, the forces of law and order and trained killers protecting decency and illegal and dangerous backyard abortions and empty landscapes where there used to be tall, proud forests and their diversity of flora and fauna, their ecology and 50-year floods every three weeks or so and raging fires every burning winter. Oh yes, he's on the ball, that Alexander! In the apropos of nothing department, watching a quiz show this week and one contestant's big moment in life was she had met Katy Perry and told us it was like meeting a regular person. As opposed to, well, well it's good to know, Katy is not an irregular person, we assume. In the week that was sport, we're recording this before his semi-final last night, presuming the Wimbledon final is between No Jab and Nick Kiriozzi Larrikin. <laughs> Who do we bowing for? And finally, look, it's been remiss over the years that unlike responsible news services, we don't finish with a financial report from the stock market. So let's redress that. Yesterday, some stocks went up and some stocks went down. And Monday, it's likely those that went up might go down and those that went down might go up. There. That's the week that was Financial Report. Good morning. Come 3CR Radio Thong Fundraiser. 3 to 7pm, Saturday, 23rd of July. Uprise Radio and Stick Together join forces bringing you an afternoon of discussion and music. Climate, Capitalism and the Future Zelda Grimshaw from Blockade Australia Dr Colin Long, Sustainability Campaigner from Victoria Trades Hall and Anthony Kelly from Melbourne Activist Legal Service Followed by tunes from local legends Les Thomas and Maxine Dink Refreshments, raffle and fun Climate, Capitalism and the Future Uprise Radio and Stick Together event 3CR Fundraiser, Saturday, July the 23rd, 3 to 7pm. Black Spark Cultural Centre, 253A St George's Road. $10 solidarity.
no one tuned away. And you're back with Annie on 3CR Breakfast and uh, we're going to go back to 2013 to the making and unmaking of the East-West Link with the author James C. Murphy. G'day James, how are you? Yeah, good. Thanks for having me today. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely fascinating uh, read for me because I was one of those people that went every day uh, to stop the uh, drilling, covering it for 3CR, 5am in the morning. So uh, it was fascinating to read your take on uh, the East-West Link because you do it with an academic eye. So tell my listeners how you approached your book. Yeah, look, um, I, I tried to do justice to some of the people that were getting up early in the morning and heading out to the picket line, but also to cover some of the other aspects of the whole drama. I, I wanted to sort of walk through the saga of East Westling from three different directions and and down there on the street and in the courts and at the ballot box, it's sort of one one walkthrough that I do of it. But I, I try to look at a couple of others as well. I... I follow uh, the making of East West Link through the Premier's office, bureaucracy, and kind of with all the different vested interests and lobbyists sort of pushing for these projects and stuff like that, Um, and then to watch how all of their best efforts to get that project realised were undone, Uh, and and by people who were picketing and people who were bringing court cases and all the rest of it. So so my approach, yeah, was to, to take it on from three different perspectives and to use that as a test for, you know, which forces are most important in uh, in our infrastructure in Melbourne. And one of the things that uh, you do is uh, tell people why we have academics who do doctorates, because that's where this began, this book, because yeah. you apply certain... Uh, not only do you do a huge amount of research and discover that the... Uh, Freedom of Information Act isn't fit yeah. for purpose, yeah. but, <laughs> but um, and we don't have to do that because <laughs> you did. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Yeah. yeah, yeah, but also you apply um, various academic theories to each of these studies, which is really yeah, neat. I find that really neat. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So, yeah, I, I had I had the kind of privilege of time. Um, Seven and, years, yeah. in fact. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. So I got I had time to do my my PhD thesis, um, and that that gave me lots of time to be able to indulge in, um, yes, Freedom of Information Act uh, applications. And I made maybe thirty or thirty five of them, and maybe four of them came turned up anything good. So yeah, I've been through the wars with um, the FOI Act and and have some grump, grumpy musings about how it could be better in, in the start of the book. But um, yeah, I also I, you're right. I had time to try out a few different theories of how the political system works, how we make decisions in Australia, uh, which players are important in the policymaking process. And I got to try out, you know, the theory that leaders are uh, kind of in control of the process if they have certain power resources to exercise. And I could kind of test that out on this case with the Premier's Napstein and Bailey, whether they were in control of the policymaking process when... East West Link sort of first got up, um, and then I could I could test out theories of bureaucracy and and where their power comes from and how they 
sort of control the agenda for politicians, even if even if a, even if pr- the premiers would rather not build a big fat road project like East West Link. Maybe there's a roads bureaucracy that is all powerful that convinces them to build it anyway. Uh, and yeah, finally, I got to test out different views of how people from outside the halls of power, people down on the street or on the picket line or in the courts or or campaigning at the ballot box, how they can take control of a of a project like this and and sort of turn the tables on the government and 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 change the outcome. And I got to test all of those and it was it was good fun. Yeah. Yeah, well, the timing and the theatre of it because it was very theatrical, wasn't it? Mm, absolutely. And there were like the the kind of campaign in front of the media was i argue very important to changing perspectives and to changing who felt that they had a stake in the issue uh, the framing of these questions matters a lot and i argued kind of in the book that that i thought that um some of the campaigning against the project um sort of created a a, a counter frame uh, certainly the pickets, I think, helped in changing the frame from being about what kind of project is the right project for Melbourne to being about social licence. And I thought that was a really important shift because it gave a lot of people, you know, living in the inner north of Melbourne, a stake because they are the community and they got to say, well, if it is up to me and it's about social licence, I'm not sure I, I'm ready to give licence to this project. So that that changed things, and it made a lot of, a lot of people feel like they had a stake, uh, which stopped the yeah change yeah, the yeah. Uh, yeah, it did because uh, the business about no trains and uh, 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 and train no car, you know no roads but trains, but also the uh, there was a lot of effort went into bringing that message to the outer suburbs as well that it wasn't just an inner city, uh, you know latte sipping yeah. set. That it was influencing. I mean, there were there's. I mean, it was such a lot of things, like uh, even down to the fact that they, uh, the government, uh, was going to use all the infrastructure funds on this one project, and so all the rural people didn't get anything. You know, like there was a lot of work done to do that reframing. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. So, um, and there was campaigning. At, you're right. The campaigning out in the burbs was important, and even in the region. And I think, I think. As a as kind of a piece of political craft, East West Link was poorly crafted because it put all the eggs in one basket. Even even in terms of like pol- like savvy politics, it's not all that savvy because yeah, it's one big fat project in the middle of the city, and the the Liberal government at the time was asking all communities to imagine themselves benefited by that, and that was that was a hard sell, especially when other other kind of parties at the twenty fourteen election were saying we're going to. You know, if it's Labor, we're going to get rid of level crossing removals, you know, and, and people could, everyone could imagine that it was their level crossing or other parties, you know, are saying we're going to do all these other different projects out in the regions or in the suburbs, um, which allowed people to kind of imagine them, their lives improved in a way that East West Link kind of struggled to sell. Yeah, it was so it was so undemocratic. Uh, I know your book is one book, but uh, I do remember at the time the uh, line in the sand, the aggression coming from the big end of town. You know, at certain events, I remember people being uh, abused in no, uncert- no uncertain terms for picketing um, a large. There was this big dinner at one of the. Uh, uh, expensive hotels where a whole yeah. lot of the bureaucrats as well as the uh, uh, shakers and movers in um, the private world, uh, you know, 
the abuse that was, you know, like you're you're just uh, dirt on the footpath. How dare you question us? It was it was classic. It was absolutely yeah. classic. And I, and I think it springs from a sense of of like that they own the process and yeah. that, and, that, and, that, and that they're the right decision makers, right? And one of the things that you get in a battle like this is always uh, a push by the uh, advocates for change for to expand the conflict and to expand participation in the in the process. And the people who are quite happy with the status quo, with the way that we usually make big infrastructure decisions, they try to close that down and to say that anyone trying to come into this decision-making process from the outside are sort of, you know, carpetbaggers or they're, they're you know, they're illegitimate in some regard. Mm. And and they'll, they'll be really resistant to, to people trying to assert a level of control over these decisions. Um, and I think we saw plenty of that. You know, the government at the time, they passed, I'm sure people recall, that they yeah. passed these quite draconian anti-protest laws and it was kind of not a secret that a big chunk of the reason why were the pickets uh, against the yeah. West Wing. Yeah, yeah. So, that, that's yeah. where all the uh, men in pyjamas <laughs> started to, uh, uh, you know, the uh, critical incident... Yes. Whatever they're called. Yeah. Yeah, the wallopers were sent in to, to West Garth Street and to, and to, like, sleepy Collingwood and taken off, you know, other other um, jobs to uh, police the pickets in this de- quite desperate attempt to reassert control over the, the kind of geotechnical drilling in the, in the inner north. And it, it, it sort of didn't go all that well. Um, and I, I've sort of argued that the pickets, I think they had a small material impact on the kind of uh, preparatory works for the project, but had a very large kind of framing and media impact. Mm, and that that, I was, think so that too. was the big contribution yeah. um, in changing minds. Yeah. But, but, but the thing about that was so impressive, besides the tactic, there was obviously tactical chess playing going on. But also the other thing that was fascinating was how many people who had so many skills, applied themselves across the board. So the VCAT stuff, the le- the legal stuff. The There were a whole lot of people who, who were older people who were retired, but who had absolutely sharp, razor-sharp Im- uh, uh, vision into the bureaucracies, and they applied think, yeah. their skills. Yeah, I think that's right. I think it was, it was quite an experienced um, kind of cohort of, of activists and often you know they, they weren't always coordinated they weren't always doing no like, yeah. you know like they weren't always singing from the same they just uh, applied team. themselves go on sorry they, uh, they just applied themselves to the task yeah that's right yeah yeah and and um i think i think all of that collective experience across across all of those various um protesters and activists and stuff like that i think it paid off in in this case, and it helped, I think, as well that it was a, this polarizing project on an environmental level, and you had a lot of people who were experienced from the environment movement decide to make East West Wing their big their big kind of target for for 2013-2014. And so, yeah, there was a lot of collective experience uh, in the nominal room. Right, they weren't in one room together, but um, but they were all working towards the same end of destroying the project. And that, yeah, that was successful. Yeah, well, the making and unmaking of East West Link is a case study, and uh, it's been published by the Melbourne University Press. Uh, so it's 
And you have taken great pains to write in a very readable way. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I, I, I've pushed for that. Um, I remember writing when I was writing my PhD thesis, um, supervisors and examiners sometimes saying, oh, you're writing a little bit casually for academia. Um, and I get in trouble sometimes being a little bit too, um, a little bit uh, uh, inadequately uh, highfalutin, right? Um, but uh, So I didn't have to change it all that much for the book. And I, I, I take pain. Yeah, to write in a way that doesn't close anyone out and that takes everyone along for the ride. So um, I want this book to be something that people who were involved at the time or people who want to understand Melbourne and their own city and how, how, how politics in this town work, to be able to read it and it, to not be just for academic wonks and people in the Ivory Tower. Yeah, yeah, well, it, it's a, 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 um, it goes beside the book that was written at the time by Anthony Mayne, I guess. Yeah, and I read that, and and part of the part of my approach in this in this book um, takes for granted that that book is out there, and that that goes into into really uh, tight detail on how the pickets work. So I touch on the pickets and talk a little bit about their effect, but don't quite go into the blow by blow story because that book's out there and it kind of does it does that job. So yeah, I think they're they're companion <laughs> companion and, items. And there's a little side issue that was fa- because of your academic eye. Uh, you go through a when you talk about the premiers and the power of the premiers, you actually uh, talk about the increasingly presidential nature of the prime ministership in Australia and premiers, which uh, is actually very important now that people are talking about um, the uh, Uluru Statement and the idea of a, um, an Indigenous uh, group that uh, advises Parliament, you know, it's a very interesting because that will ch- that would change that that dynamic. Yeah, that's quite right. So um, the, fl- the, fl- the kind of direction of concentration has been towards more power for the chief executive, whether that's the premier or the prime minister, um, uh, and the kind of role of parliament has sort of dwindled. However, um, that's that's almost more a function of us having very strong and disciplined p- political parties, which are happy to serve the leader, at least until the leader does the wrong thing and they, they're they ready to turf them and replace the new leader. Um, I think um, I think that actually the presidential... There's sort of this whole thesis in, in Australian academia or a controversy around the presidentialization thesis about whether it's kind of... Uh, a bit ahistorical about whether maybe there were very strong and, and, and powerful prime ministers and premiers, you know, a hundred years ago, and that uh, maybe it's sort of an ebb and flow rather than a one-way street of, of leaders getting more and more power. Mm. And I kind of, I kind of uh, go more for that that latter position that that um, we've actually seen some very, you know, um, Bolte, uh, Premier Bolte of Victoria. Henry Bolte was an absurdly powerful premier, and that's, you know, 1950s, 1960s, into the 70s, early 70s. And that's sort of at a time when the state was um, uh, much less complex, I guess, and much smaller, and he could kind of run the state almost as a one-man show, and everyone kind of deferred to what um, Bolte and his aura had to say about what we should do about, shall we... Shall we hang this um, this criminal, or shall we build this bridge, or shall we, you know, and and 
they call him Salt and, the Salt and Pepper Premier because he was on any, everything. <laughs> um, anyway, um, the point is that uh, the making and unmaking of East West Link has got many uh, things to offer anybody who were, was to pick it up. It tells you about the actual battle, but it also looks at a whole lot of other sort of uh, its role in um, infrastructure policy making. Yeah, along the way, we encounter lots of different trends and issues in Australian yeah. politics and policy making, including, you know, the power of leaders, the power of the bureaucracy, and the power of like social movements, protest movements, and stuff like that, and how they how they shape things. So it's a good excuse to go for a wonderful like ride through some of those those big picture issues. Thank you very much for talking to me this morning, James. Thanks for having me. No worries. And uh, that was James C. Murphy, who has written this book, The Making and Unmaking of East West Link, and it is published by Melbourne University Press. Uh, Before we finish the program today, I am going to uh, play a speech that was uh, delivered at the uh, Reproductive Rights Rally last Saturday. It's Esme James, a rousing, rollicking speech. When abortion rights are under attack, what do we do? When abortion rights are under attack, what do we do? What do we do? What do we do? What do we do? Solidarity, comrades! Next speaker today is Esme James. Esme is an academic at uh, the University of Melbourne and a prolific TikToker. <laughs> we'll talk about TikTok going live. She has over 2 million people who follow her sex history's TikTok, which is pretty bloody amazing. Um, and she's going to be talking about some of those things of what, what life was like for women uh, and trans people before our right uh, to, to abortion. She also helped to organise the demonstration in 2019 here in Melbourne when Alabama tried to strip totally women's rights to choose, to ban even abortion um, up to six weeks. So total ban on abortion, we, and she helped mobilise then. So welcome, Esme. I would also like to start by acknowledging that we are standing on Solon land today and that our fight for justice here is far from over. In 1973, Roe v. Wade came about, and this was 100 years after the criminalization of abortion in America. Some thought that abortion rates would rise following this legalization, but that isn't what happened. Our estimation is that the rates of illegal abortions that took place prior to Roe versus Wade are identical to the amount of legal abortions that take place today. Banning abortions has never stopped them from happening. History and statistics will continually tell us this story. Banning abortions does not stop abortions from happening, but it sure as hell ensures that more of us will die in the process. The scholar Leslie Reagan recorded the stories of those who suffered in a time where abortions were banned in America. Of the women who paid $1,000 for back alley abortions and were offered a discount if they could be sexually assaulted in the process. Oh my God. 
of those who couldn't afford this cost. And so they drank castor oil and Everclear alcohol. They bathed themselves in boiling water and they threw themselves downstairs. And if these means didn't work out, they hammered their stomachs with meat pulverizers and inserted catheters inside themselves until they bled. We all know the symbol of the coat hanger, but do we know what it actually stands for? The point of the coat hanger was not to perform an abortion yourself. It was to induce enough bleeding, prolific bleeding, that a doctor would be forced to operate and may believe you were naturally miscarrying. They are the means that we have to go to. Sixty-eight thousand women continue to die every year from these methods. Forty percent of those are girls aged between 14 and 25. Do not think for a second that the overturn of Roe versus Wade signals a return back to these dark ages, because it doesn't. It signals a progress to somewhere far worse. If the leaders of the so-called free world can look at these stories of trauma and death and see nothing but inspiration for their policies, then we are truly living in a world that is governed by monsters. Our code hangers will look different to they did in the past. They will look like doctors refusing chemotherapy because it may harm a fetus. It will look like atopic pregnancies being treated too late. Pregnancies which guarantee both the death of the person and the embryo and a situation we have already seen in Texas this week. It will look like the number of teenagers killing themselves rise because they think they have nowhere else to turn. These are not my predictions. These are observations that have already been made by Michelle Obron working in countries where abortions are currently banned. Let's not forget while we stand here with America that this fight has been ongoing in many places all over the world. 45% of all abortions that take place every year happen in unsafe circumstances. These abortions still account for 10% of maternal deaths every single year. Now is the time to include everyone in our activism. In a time where the scales of injustice are so heavily imbalanced, our strength is in numbers, in bodies. While we stand here today, in our shore and across shores, remember everyone in your activism. Stand with your sisters and your trans brothers and all people with uteruses through this fight. We stand in solidarity and we come up to fight when we are called because they do not win when a piece of paper is passed. They win when we are silent. They win when we stop fighting back and they win when we forget that the power is not ours to take back but was always ours to begin with.
we fight in solidarity. And if this fight ever comes to our shores, fucking give them hell. Hey, a rollicking speech. Uh, that's it for uh, Solidarity Breakfast this morning. And coming up next is Asia Pacific Currents. We'll go back uh, uh, down memory lane with the last song. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.